Welcome to The Commentary, a weekly conversation about vision, worship, and life at Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm Mark Bertrand, the pastor of Grace, and my fellow commenter in today's episode is Cameron Brooks. This episode is another one of our book recommendation pieces, but this time it's a little different because the book we'll be talking about was written by me. My 2007 book, Rethinking Worldview, will be familiar to members of Grace. It's one of the books we give you when you join, and I know at least some people actually read it. If you've ever wondered why I wrote the book, or how I feel about it so many years later, in this episode you'll get to find out. Pastor Mark, we've talked about your book, Rethinking Worldview, here and there in this podcast in certain episodes, but not in depth. And I was hoping we could spend some time in one episode going into a little more detail about that book, where it came from, and if you have any second thoughts about it. (laughs) Uh, Not a leading question by any means, but I recognize that it's been out for, what, 15 years now? 15 years, yeah. Yeah, so... I, I think that's that's fantastic. It relates a little bit to the conversation we had in a recent episode about kind of cultural liturgies and how the world disciples us. We had that discussion recently, and I think some of your book pertains to that. So the first question is really just a broad one. Where did this book come from for you? Why did you decide to write one? There are many books on worldview. You yourself acknowledge that in the title that it had to be rethought, though. Right. Yeah, you know, it's a good question because by the time I wrote Rethinking Worldview, there were a lot of worldview books. And I'll be honest with you, um, a lot of bad ones because the inevitable consequence of an idea gaining popularity is that more and more people kind of attach themselves to it and uh, popularize, right? And so if you look at what I think of like some of the milestones in worldview writing, let's say, you know, that uh, you you could go back, at least on the popular level, to Francis Schaeffer and, and pretty much all of his books in one way or another connect to, to worldview and... James Sire was kind of in that vein and really, I think, set the tone for the way a lot of people talked about worldview. In the early 90s, there was a series that Crossway did, the Turning Point Christian Worldview series, where there was a volume uh, devoted to pretty much like all of the major topics of, of thinking. You know, there's one on economics, there's one on culture, pretty much everything uh, Ken Meyer's book, All God's Children in Blue Suede Shoes, was the one on art and culture, and fantastic book. My introduction to Ken Meyer's of Mars Hill Audio fame. And yeah, so a lot of good books along the way. However, <laughs> I would say that they were the exception, that a lot of the stuff that, that was said about worldview was as simplistic as, you know, your worldview is the way of seeing the world, the Bible has a unique worldview. You should have the Bible's worldview, not some other philosophy's worldview. And, and basically treated the formation of ideas in that stereotypical buffet line approach that we've talked about before, where 
you as an individual, like kind of seen as an autonomous, rational thinker who is just weighing all the evidence and neutrally deciding what thought commitments, what ideological frame you want to adopt. And, you know, that's good as far as it goes, but it really doesn't get to what I always thought was the most promising aspect of worldview thinking, which if I had to sum it all up, I would say that, that it is a combination of, on the one hand, yes, that there is a biblical perspective on reality. But on the other hand, an acknowledgement of human subjectivity that leads us to be cautious in assuming that whatever we as Christians think or like must automatically be the biblical perspective on something. So what I wanted to do was essentially recover the idea of worldview, which because of all of those appropriations was kind of falling out of favor. And, and there were a lot of people who felt like, you know, the W word was, was one not to be spoken. And that was, was an old way of thinking that it wasn't really beneficial any longer. So where were you at in life 15 years ago? What, what stage of your career were you at when you started this book? Yeah. So at that point I had been teaching with worldview Academy for, I guess it would have been six or seven years. And so I was really, you know, interested in worldview thinking. I was also in a sort of, I would say like a, a, a period of artistic formation where I was thinking a lot, not just about, you know, philosophy and theology, but also how those things might impact my own interests in contributing to the culture. And so I had very um, specific reasons for wanting to not only kind of do the thought exercise, but also like, like to, to basically present the idea of worldview in a way that could be of value to people like me who wanted to think better about reality and about theology, but also wanted to kind of put those tools to use in, in creative work or in any kind of work. I've never thought about that before, how you were a novelist at the time, but that makes a lot of sense to me that you would, you would approach worldview almost out of that kind of necessity to, to apply it to your own work. Maybe one of the downfalls of other worldview thinking is that it's content to just be academic or cerebral, you know, rational thought, just figure it all out, get your categories right, and then you're set. But your book seems to be discontent with that. And I especially see that in your second section on wisdom, where mm -hmm. you're talking about how we need to apply this to our lives and work it out. For me, uh, worldview became, let's say, an obsession, an interest <laughs> after grad school. You know, I had been in the graduate program getting my master's of fine arts and creative writing. One of the aspects of that education that had really struck me profoundly was the classes we had to do on modern thought, which I've 
kind of jokingly referred to as intro to Nietzsche. Yeah. But the, the rationale for including those courses was that as a writer, you need some sort of take on the world, right? You, you need a perspective. And this was a class to kind of help you think through uh, what you thought about the world. And I did not embrace the philosophy on offer in those classes, but I did agree with the logic of, of that pursuit. And so after finishing grad school, that's when I started dabbling in seminary specifically to just study enough theology to, to be able to kind of take from that and, and use it in writing fiction, basically. And, and it was in that period that I was introduced to uh, via Scott Oliphant's course on apologetics, David Noggle's book, Worldview, History of a Concept. And, and I'd been interested in worldview before, but had sort of, um, you know, that, that interest had cooled somewhat uh, just because there's a lot of things to be interested in. But reading Noggle's book really, I think, not only reawakened that fascination, but also gave it a deeper foundation. You know, I think he opened up some things that um, either I hadn't considered or I didn't have words for, you know. And so at that point, I was thinking, you know, this is great. Like, this, this is really helpful. But even, even there, it was a fantastic sort of historical and academic presentation. And I was always looking for the bridge between the academic and the, the thing that I as a novelist needed. And so Rethinking Worldview for me was, was a bridging of those two worlds. Like it is not an academic book. It's more essayistic, and it is designed with the idea of equipping someone who's going to be using these ideas in life, in, in work, not, not necessarily in uh, scholarship. Well, I want to quiz you on the book, and we can do a quick flyover review of the three sections that you outlined for us, um, helpfully alliterated with W's worldview, wisdom, and witness. I just thought maybe we could talk about each of those sections briefly, what's going on in each of them, kind of give people a taste of the book if they haven't read it yet. And, um, but don't give away so much that they don't go pick up the book. I'll do my best. <laughs> it's actually one of my pet peeves when there's mm -hmm. a podcast interview and you know the author gives the whole book away. So um, I won't explain who dies at the end. <laughs> yes, okay, okay. So you started out... Maybe we've already touched on some of the things that you open the book with, but the first section is on worldview kind of generally. You give something of your justification for why you think this book was needed. What else is going on, though, in just the way that you set up worldview thinking? Yeah, so if you think about the the subtitle to the book, you know, it's it's about learning to think and live and speak in the world. And so the three sections of the book corresponds to those three goals. So in the first section of, book, of the book, we're thinking about you know, how to think in this world. And so that's where we talk about worldview. In the second section, it's how to live in the world. And that's why we talk about wisdom. Mm -hmm. And in the final section, it is how to speak in this world. And so we talk about witness. 
there's a fourth section at the end about worship, mm-hmm. and we can talk about why that is uh, as as we go forward. But the initial part of the book is what would be the only part of the book in a traditional worldview book. Yeah. Right? That, that usually worldview is, is the beginning and end of the book. And in this book, it is, it, it's a substantive foundation, but it's a foundation. And something has to be built on it. Mm-hmm. And so in the initial discussion of worldview, the thing that I'm really focused on is coming to terms with the various ways that we can think of worldview. Right? So we'll talk about uh, starting points, systems, and stories as a way of distinguishing those. That, that there's a, certainly in, in its initial or original meaning, worldview was about the unacknowledged assumptions beneath our thoughts. That we make certain judgments or we just have certain perspectives that shape our belief systems, but they're not our belief systems. Like we're not even aware of them. Like you, you can label your belief system, but you're not conscious of the assumptions that drive it. Hmm. And so getting under the hood and really digging around and seeing like, like what am I assuming is true and then basing my beliefs upon, that's, I think the purest and most valuable way of approaching worldview. But it's not improper to talk about belief systems in the context of worldview, right? Because there's a, a I think, a rich tradition, in, at least in, in literary criticism, of using the term worldview to describe what people believed in a certain period. You know, we can talk about the Elizabethan worldview or something like that. And, and, and there we're talking about things those people believed, not just their assumptions, but also their, their, their out-and-out expressed perspective on things. Do you use the metaphor of a set of glasses at one point, or am I, am I making oh, yeah. that up? Yeah, I mean, that, of course, is not original to me. Yeah. It's, it's one of the, the most common, I think, ways of talking about worldview is, is uh, you know, prescription lenses that help you see reality for what it is. And it's a helpful metaphor because, um, you know, it, it, nobody asks the optometrist to give them blurry vision because they prefer things to, yeah. to look that way. Like we make an assumption that, that 2020 corresponds to reality. Mm-hmm. And so vision is corrected. It's not just, you know, an expression of how you want to see things. There's right. a sense of objective reality. I think that's helpful too, because it is possible to remove your glasses, you know, and kind of analyze them, so to speak. And so there's that, the assumption level, the visceral level where we have these deep-seated beliefs that we're unaware of sometimes, and they're just affecting the way we see the world. But I think you're saying as well, there's also a chance to assess your rational system, you know, the, your, your actual beliefs about the world, kind of the covert and the overt. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, so just to take one example, um, we often assume that the data of the universe is is sort of there 
waiting to be interpreted and waiting for us to make sense of it. From a Christian standpoint, of course, that cannot be the case because God created all things and is omniscient, all-knowing. So everything is already interpreted. Like all of the pieces already fit together in the mind of God, which means that although we are subjective and we are capable of interpreting things in many different ways, that ultimately there is a, a, a quote-unquote right interpretation of reality to be found in the mind of God. Not accessible to us in, in its fullness, certainly, but, but that does exist. And that's a very fundamental assumption, that assumption of creation and what follows from it, that if you make that, changes everything downstream from it. And if you make the assumption instead that, that no, the, the world is just full of, you know, mysteries waiting for us to decide what they mean, then whether you profess belief in God or not, you're functioning essentially as if you don't. And so, again, it, it's that, that layer of unscrutinized assumptions. And yes, part of the, the point, certainly of the first section of this book, is to, to make the reader aware of things that you haven't been aware of before in the hope that you can revisit them, right? That's, that's one of the ways that, that I try to rethink worldview, right? The, a personal way that, that through reading the book, you start rethinking things, <laughs> your own worldview, your own perspective. And then, of course, I'm also trying to rethink the concept of worldview and how it's used and how it might be uh, more beneficial in some ways than in others. Well, one recent critique I've actually heard of worldview is that it doesn't leave room or it deliberately leaves out wisdom, which mm. is interesting because your book does not do that. Right. And so you have this whole middle section about learning to live in the world. What is the connection between that, that rational introduction, you know, that thinking and the living in your mind? Yeah, I mean, my greatest frustration with, with worldview, let's say rhetoric, discourse, is that tendency to stop at the level of thought, mm -hmm. as if it's as simple as straightening out what we think, and then everything will flow from there. I think it's a common assumption we make, but it's quite false. It's similar to the assumption that if we just get our theology right, then everything else will fall into place. It's like, no, actually, you have to keep working at getting other things right as well. And so for me, worldview is foundational. But what that means is that if you stop there, all you've done is like poured some concrete. You know, and nobody's ready to move into basically a slab. Like you've got to build on top of it. And the thing that you build on top of it is a life of wisdom. And a huge portion of scripture is devoted to wisdom. And yet, you know, modern Christians certainly have very little use for that when it comes to how to live our lives, how to make decisions. Oftentimes, the approach that, that people take isn't so much, you know, I need to cultivate and pursue a life of wisdom. It's more like, 
well, the Holy Spirit is there to kind of guide my heart so that I don't need that kind of wisdom. And I think that's clearly wrong. And so for me, worldview must flow naturally into the life of wisdom. And in some ways, that's a, let's say, like a return to an earlier sense of, of even philosophy. Right? The early philosophers, I think, would have been surprised at, at the idea of academic philosophy because philosophy was intended to affect the way you live. Now, the desire, the reason you would study philosophy is, is to live differently, not to think differently. I mean, that's what the word philosophy means, right? Love of wisdom, yeah. Yeah. Love of wisdom. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So in the, the center section of the book, which you could argue is, is the heart of the book, that's really the focus, trying, trying to take worldview and show how it connects to wisdom. And this is kind of the origin story of the book because it was really an interest in Scripture's wisdom literature that drove a lot of my thinking in terms of, you know, like Ecclesiastes, one of my favorite books in the Bible, is the, the profundity of it, but also the, the seemingly unrelenting honesty mm-hmm. of it. You know, when I think about a worldview presented in, in print, that book contains one. So that, that was the idea there, is, is to focus on cultivating you know, a life that worldview can inform. You also make the move, though, to say that for a Christian, wisdom is not just a concept, but a person. Yes. Jesus Christ is, is the wisdom of God. What difference does that make for our pursuit of wisdom? Well, I think it makes a big difference, practically speaking, because it helps us to see the continuity between Old and New Testament, where the quest or pursuit of wisdom in the Old Testament can be seen as a philosophical project in a way, or or a self-help project in some sense. In the New Testament, we don't have books like Proverbs, and it's easy to think that, well, that's no longer relevant to us. You know, there, there is no New Testament analog to the quest for wisdom. But of course there is. And in 1 Corinthians 1, when Paul talks about Christ as the wisdom of God, it should suddenly click for you because the New Testament is all about the pursuit of Christ. So the pursuit of wisdom in the Old Testament is simply revealed in the New to be the pursuit of Christ. And this really helps, I think, illuminate as well the, the dichotomy that's drawn between the wisdom of God and the wisdom of men, where it's easy without thinking about Christ as God's wisdom to imagine the Bible saying something like, um, you know, God's wisdom is, is real wisdom, and that's why Christians are always right about everything. And there's man's wisdom, which is just ridiculous folly, and, and obviously so. And that's not the case. Like, man's wisdom is presented in Scripture as something that can be very persuasive, something that can make sense. Uh, it is ultimately folly, but only because it 
it rejects the the true font of wisdom, Christ. So for the Christian, this helps, I think, because it means that your cultivation of a life of wisdom is the cultivation of life in Christ. So by focusing on, to use the theological term, sanctification, I can understand my sanctification as something like the pursuit of wisdom as the Bible describes it. And that gives it a positive orientation rather than a negative one, which I think a lot of times sanctification seems to people to be more of just mortification. You know, sanctification is just trying to sin less without a sense of, of what it is we're actually trying to to do instead of just not to. Yeah, yeah, that, that makes sense to me. The last section is on learning to speak in this world. And that W is for witnessing. This too, I think, is an unusual approach to worldview to even add that onto the conversation at all. So why did you find that section necessary and what's going on there? Yeah, I mean, think about it this way. Like, like if I build my analogy a little bit farther, so if worldview is the foundation and then you've got to build something on top of it and that's wisdom, on top of that is something else. You might think of this as a fortification, right? That we have a foundation, then we build a wall on top of it, like a little castle, and then we're going to have little archers on the top. They're going to be shooting out arrows. They're going to be loving arrows. But, but these are sort of the, the guys who are going to be reaching out to the world around us. That's witness. And all too often, the way it really works in the church is people come to Christ, or at least they come to church, and immediately are thrust into that front line of witness. Right? That's the mission. That's what you're supposed to be doing. You need to go out there and bear witness in some sense, whether it's literal evangelism or some sort of personal relationship-building evangelism or apologetics or what have you. That's what you're supposed to be doing. The difficulty is, if that foundation of worldview hasn't been laid and that fortification of wisdom isn't there, then you, you don't have a place to stand in order to project that witness out into the world. Right? And that's the reason why I think all too often our attempts at bearing witness are thin and lack credibility. So the reason that I end with witness is because, again, I think it flows inevitably worldview they go together they need one another but they also at least logically speaking have this sequence to them like witness needs to be able to draw on a life of wisdom and that needs a foundation of worldview in order for it all to kind of be what it ought to be and so ironically those chapters in that final section are some of the ones I'm probably most passionate about and which, you know, if you think about it, the, the, the 12th chapter, the final full chapter in the book is on cultural contribution. I've often told people after I wrote this book, I basically just lived chapter 12 
in writing novels. Okay. You know, I just started making cultural contributions. And if you read that chapter, you kind of get uh, at least a preliminary sense of a philosophy that uh, I, I, I took as inspiration in, in the work that, the creative work that I've, I've been doing ever since. So that's the, the rationale for it. I, I think our witness is better if it has this foundation and, and this life of wisdom to draw upon. Two things I want to say. The first is I'm thinking about teaching this to others. I used to teach high schoolers about worldview, and it always felt like we got stuck in that first phase, and that used to frustrate me. But the way you're talking about this, it's almost like worldview is a lifelong endeavor at the same time. So maybe there's room for stages where, you know, we gotta we do need to learn these ideas. And we need to learn you have a section on learning to read and and a, and wisdom is certainly a lifelong project and, and as well as witnessing you know so I think maybe there's there's room for a little bit of patience when it comes to developing this worldview and and in fact, I think it should be seen like you're suggesting as a lifelong thing rather than just adopting a certain set of beliefs. Do you think that's fair? I think it is fair, and I think it's also inevitable, realistically. And we talked about this in, in past episodes, but worldview formation is not something that, that you have complete control over, and it's not something that, that happens you know, at a certain phase of life and then is settled. It's a continual thing that's going on, sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse. And you see this all around you. You see people who are gradually coming to a deeper understanding of things they have believed for years. They are getting a more profound, more rooted understanding of their faith. But you also see people who are completely reinventing themselves, turning against what they once believed and embracing, in some cases, just the opposite of what they once believed. That's a worldview transformation as well. And... These are happening, you know, constantly all around us and, and within us. And so for me, that task of, of thinking through worldview is, is one that you're always doing. You're always conscious that you haven't arrived at it. It's the reason why early in the book, I, I make clear that there, there isn't a Christian worldview. There are Christian worldviews, probably as many of them as there are Christians. <laughs> there isn't one Christian worldview. Right, there is a biblical worldview, like there's a, a divine worldview, let's say. But once it trickles down to us as individuals, things start getting messy and inconsistent and and changeable, right? And so, so yeah, I think all of this stuff is a moving target. And what I tried to do was kind of like nail things down enough to sort of like outline the process and and say what I could about each of the the parts that I could perceive. And you add on in the epilogue a final W, and I want to talk about that because it seems, although it's a short section, it's an epilogue, it seems very important. And that W is worship. I thought I would actually read a section, if you don't mind. Um, this is on page 247. Worship is not like the other categories one of several stages in an independent cycle. 
Rather, think of it as an umbrella covering them all, an idea standing outside the construct and forming it, stretching it, and pushing it toward fulfillment. Worship is an ecstatic reverence for God expressed through thought and action and utterance. Worship is something we think and feel, something we do, that once an act of communion, excuse me, communication and communion. It is also a state of being. In worship, we aspire toward our final state of glory, manifesting what is already finished of a work not yet complete. It's a beautiful passage, so thank you for that. Why, though, did you feel this need? Maybe that passage <laughs> speaks for itself, but can you talk a little bit more about adding this onto the end? So what I was trying to do there was, again, address like a, a deep context for everything that is happening and, and, and a context that all too often is omitted. That the, the book is addressing you first and foremost, as a disciple and as a worshiper, which is to say as a human being, not as a thinker or a doer or even a talker. And so that was the final note that I wanted to, to end on, because even in our conversation here, you can see and the word that I used in that excerpt is construct, mm -hmm. right? That this way of thinking, you know, worldview, wisdom, witness, it's pedagogical, but it's describing something that's a lot more fluid than those categories suggest. And so rather than, than stopping by articulating a construct and then sort of filling in the blanks, I wanted to situate that within what I think is a more fundamental reality. It's touched on earlier in the book, but, but I thought as a, a place to end, Worship really completes that um, structure and gives a different context to it. And, you know, th so this was in 2007 when this was published. And I think that if I had been prescient, I would have flipped the structure, begun with worship, and I probably would have just called it something about, you know, worship and worldview or whatever. And then I would have been visibly ahead of the the thing that has now sort of come to more prominence, which is that emphasis on, on human beings as worshipers, on not just our thoughts, but our desires and affections, things we've talked about mm -hmm. in the past, which was not really kind of out there at that point. And so in one sense, I look back and I'm really pleased that I feel Rethinking Worldview has aged well in that sense, that, yeah. that the, the gaps that you might find in a circa 2007 book on, on Worldview, uh, I'm sure there are gaps, but, but not the ones you might expect. <laughs> on the other hand, of course, hindsight is 2020, and you know, like, perhaps more people would have read this book if, if I had had the cleverness to, to position that differently, you know, so... So for what it's worth, you know, when you're asking earlier about things you would do differently or, or I haven't yet, like Augustine, made out a list of retractions. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> but, uh, but that is one of the things when I look back on the book, if I were doing kind of a, 
an updated edition or something. I, I'd want to bring that aspect out more. Um, in fact, I would do that more generally. I, my tendency is, is always, rather than to critique what is wrong, to try to say what is right. Because I think the errors eventually are corrected. And if you spend too much time focusing on the errors, then you know, tomorrow's errors will be different. And so you, the, the book lacks some of its universality. And so what I tried to do was state as clearly as I could what I believed about these things, not to devote a lot of time to critiquing what I thought was wrong in, in other approaches to worldview. And so um, that probably is too subtle, you know, and, and, and other people have pointed out to me that the book wouldn't, wouldn't, it wouldn't have hurt the book to include more explicit critiques of what I see as, as problems of, of certain approaches. I just, that was not the focus of what I was trying to do. Well, still a very edifying book in my view, and I'm certainly grateful to have received a copy when I became a member at Grace. Um, it is, again, for listeners, Rethinking Worldview, Learning to Think, Live, and Speak in This World by J. Mark Bertrand. And I'm sure we'll link a copy, you know, link to it in the, the show notes. And thanks for the discussion today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for listening to the commentary. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can rate us on your favorite podcast app and share episodes with your friends on social media. You can subscribe to the commentary on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. To find out more about us online, visit graceforsufalls.org.